Hey guys, this is Patrick. Welcome to Bibliology, a podcast where I speak to world-renowned Bible scholars on their recent research and its implications for communities of faith. Today on the show, you'll get to hear my conversation with Dr. Dorothy A. Lee, a conversation revolving around the New Testament author Luke, and based on her recently published book, The Ministry of Women in the New Testament, Reclaiming the Biblical Vision for Church Leadership. Dr. Lee is Senior Fellow in Classics in the School of Historical Studies at the University of Melbourne, and is also the Frank Woods Distinguished Professor of New Testament. As well as that, she is an ordained Anglican priest. Her research interests include the Greco-Roman background of the New Testament, the narrative structure and symbolic theologies of the Gospels, and of particular relevance to the discussion today, the place of women's leadership in the Church. There is a link to her new book in the description, and I would recommend it. It's a worthwhile read. In this conversation, I chose to focus on the figure of Luke uh, in the New Testament and his writings uh, for two main reasons. So firstly, as you'll soon realize, Luke is a bit of a divisive figure in this debate. And secondly, I needed to narrow down the discussion somehow, as there's just so much material that could be discussed. We could have talked about Paul, we could have talked about the uh, environment in the Second Temple period, for uh, how women were treated. We could have talked about whether um, there's a trajectory hermeneutic that we can follow um, based on the New Testament, but um, I chose to just focus, narrow down and focus on one author. I'd just like to say that the question of women's leadership in the church is an area that I'm largely undecided on, and I made this clear to Dr. Lee, and she was very understanding, and without trying to sound um, enlightened in some way. I think both positions can be held by devout Christians due to the ambiguity that surrounds the topic in the New Testament. And I'm making efforts every day to understand the topic better and to come to a clearer conclusion. With that said, let's get on to the conversation and I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Hello, Dr. Lee. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Lovely to be here. So I'm just going to start off with a set of brief um, questions to establish your hum- humanity, you know, that uh, <laughs> would you consider yourself an introvert or because um, I think a lot oh, of scholar, a lot of scholars tend to be introverts, but. Uh, yes, I, I'm kind of on the borderline. Yeah. So yeah. I'm a, a bit of both. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I enjoy human company. I love being with other people, but there comes a point where I've just got to get out of there and I live alone and I love living alone. And so the last year or so, actually, no, I didn't mind it. Um, okay. okay. No, I, there were a couple of people I was caring for pastorally. So I got to mix with a couple of people and then I looked after my grandchildren sometimes. So yeah, I actually quite enjoyed it, but I'm too scared to say that in public because everybody hated the lockdown. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of that over there, over here as well. So yeah, I can um, imagine. Now, obviously, you live in you live in Australia. Um, yes. And and us, uh, when we think of uh, Australia, we think of, you know, the um, the wildlife there, the dangerous wildlife um, and like uh, box jellyfish, uh, funnel web spiders, uh, brown snakes, those kind of things. Yeah, so yeah. Um, so. Could you give us some guidance on how to avoid these? Should Look, we? Look, I'm terrified walking down the street. I'm so terrified I'm going to stand on a brown snake or, or see one. No, I, I live in a city. I never see them. Yeah. Um, the only wildlife I see is if I go out in the country, 
Um, I might see kangaroos. Um, I might see some koalas and the occasional wombat. And that's actually, that's the thrilling part of the wildlife. Yeah, no, no, I've, I've always, I've always liked wombats anyway. Um, uh, oh, that's they're nice. gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you belong to the Anglican tradition, obviously. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah. Have you, have you always been part of this denomination? And if so, why have you remained ever loyal to your tradition? And if, <laughs> if not, what prompted the change in scenery? I was actually brought up in the Free Church of Scotland, uh, the wee freeze they generally refer to, very conservative. And uh, I was in Sydney and they weren't ordaining women at the time, so I joined the Uniting Church, which is a sort of combination of Methodist, Presbyterian, Congregationalist. And I joined them for a while, um, but then um, then I became an Anglican about 12, 13 years ago. Okay. Yeah, so I'm a relatively recent Anglican, so it's easy to be loyal. Okay. And uh, was there any particular reason, thing that attracted you to the Anglican Church? Um, I like two things about Anglicanism, at least in this country, is, uh, is very broad. Um, you can get the sort of high liturgy, very formal liturgy, which I love. But then you also get the evangelical side, which is with its focus on scripture. And I love that too. So, so I feel quite at home here. Yeah, yeah. No, I've, that's the, I think the most, one of the most intriguing things about the Anglican Church is definitely that it's an evangelical church that has liturgy. You know, that's, it, it yes. almost, it seems unusual, you know, to, to put those two things together. Um, yeah, we try. We don't do a great job at, at uh, Union, but I, I like to see them as different charisms. The, the Catholics talk about charisms and, and there are different charisms that people bring. And, uh, and that's how I think of it. So we have to receive what the charism is, the charisms that, that God has given us. You know, we have to receive them and welcome them. Yeah. And obviously you were mentioning there that, you know, the, the evangelicals have, have their focus on scripture. So obviously you've, you've read the Bible a lot. Um, yes. But um, what book of the Bible have you read the least and oh, why? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Why? Oh, Oh dear, that's a very difficult question. Probably Leviticus is my least go-to text. Um, I struggle sometimes to, I mean, there's some beautiful bits in it, but I do struggle with it sometimes. Um, I, I recognise the problem's mine, but, uh, but that's probably the book that I've read the least. And why? Because there are so many laws in it and some of them seem so weird. Yeah, I, I, I had a I have a friend actually who's, you know, doing that Bible through a year plan and I, I warned him explicitly explicitly about Leviticus, you know, because I think I think people can cope with the laws in Exodus because some of them are kind of you know, they're interesting, you know, they're case laws or, or whatever, but when you get to Leviticus it's just everything is kind of in the temple, you know, and all this and you know, people really struggle to visualize that. So I can yes. I can totally understand yeah. that. Yeah. On that note, we'll move on to talking about your talking about your book. Um, and it's called The Ministry of Women in the New Testament, I believe. Um, yes. Yes. And I particularly enjoyed the chapters on Luke. So that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Um, I, right. I entitled this interview was Luke a feminist. And we're going to be discussing whether that you think that's an <laughs> anachronistic term or whatever. But um it was a it's, a, it's a great book anyway. At the, at the beginning of your first chapter on Luke, um, you write the following. In one view, 
Luke is the great supporter of women's ministry, while in the other, Luke subordinates women's roles. So that's that's very much um, polar opposites there. So could you briefly briefly elaborate on why this schism exists among scholars and um, what side you come down on? Yes. Um, well, uh, it's very hard to answer why. Um, I think earlier feminists um, acclaimed Luke because there are so many women and because Luke, particularly in the gospel, has a lot of pairing of, of uh, there'll be a story about a man and that's followed by a story about a woman. You know, there's, so there's a lot of pairing and there's a lot of emphasis on women throughout the gospel. I think the first reaction was Luke is, uh, you know, the, the most feminist in inverted commas of all the gospels. And then I think there came a sort of a reaction against that from a number of women who claimed that uh, on the basis partly of Acts, the fact there are so relatively fewer women in Acts, a number of women argued that, in fact, Luke downplays women so that he introduces them in order to subordinate them. Um, so there's an increase in women, but it's a kind of got a sinister purpose. Um, and since then, I think uh, between that and the reaction to it, I think there's now what I'd call multiple perspectives on Luke. That, that is more than one perspective on Luke. Um, I come down on the side that uh, I cannot see that, that, that Luke is out to entrap women or to put them down. Um, I, I take Luke at face value and, and I think that Luke does... Um, give a lot of stress to women, particularly in the gospel. And I think that goes back to Jesus himself and his, his extraordinary um, his extraordinary way of dealing with women. Um, you know, neither, as, as Dorothy Elsayers once said, neither patronising them nor, um, you know, nor putting them up on a pedestal, um, neither speaking down to them nor looking up to them. Mm. Uh, they're treated as human beings. And that, that's Dorothy Sayers, and I think it's a marvellous statement. It's certainly true of the Luke and Jesus I think Acts is a little bit more difficult to answer, but I think Luke does his best in his context, and I think we always forget. And that's the problem with calling New Testament um, writers feminist. And they're not. They're, they don't live in a feminist world, and we can't expect them to be what we think we they ought to be for us. But I think Luke does give women um, a real prominence in the gospel and uh, um so I come down on the, perhaps not the side that, that saw Luke as the great feminist, but that Luke actually does really give women uh, a significant voice. Yeah. So would you say that the term feminist, it is anachronistic to use that? Of um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Feminism is a 19th, 20th, 21st century movement, political movement that started with Christians. We often forget that. Started with Christian women. And, uh, and is, is not relevant to, uh, we've got to take context seriously, both theirs and ours. And we've yeah. got to respect context, I think. Yeah. On, on that note, um, you, you've touched on the, uh, briefly on sort of the, the environment that these people lived in. So could you elaborate, elaborate on that? So this is obviously the, the second temple um, period in, uh, yes. in, in Palestine or in the, the, the Greco-Roman world. What was this environment like as for women? Were they um, were they considered second class citizens, subhuman, um, and what, what were some of the big issues that that they would have faced? Or do we, do we underestimate the power that women had? Is another yeah. In some in some places we do. Uh, there's considerable diversity of views about women. 
in the ancient world. Um, in uh, the Greek, for Greek women, um, particularly in Athens, they were not citizens. They weren't second-class citizens. They simply weren't citizens. Um, mind you, nor were slaves, nor were poor men. Um, but uh, but women certainly um, had very little or much less power in, in Greece. In Rome, women had more power. And, for example, they could inherit property. They could inherit money. Um, but, uh, but still, they were not able to be citizens. So it's still a very patriarchal context. Um, however, there is considerable difference between an upper-class woman who's got wealth and privilege and status and honour and, and a poor man, um, the woman will actually have more power there. So we have to take it um, alongside issues of class uh, and culture and so on. Um, but for the most part, it was a patriarchal world, but it was amazing the, uh, the voices of women that speak all the same within it. And, uh, and not just in, among Christians, but also there were Jewish women, there were women in, in a number of philosophical movements who managed to break free of the kind of trammels of patriarchy and and have a real voice. Mm. And uh, of course, some of these we get at, at the start of um, the Gospel of Luke. Interestingly enough, some of these voices. So yes. you um, you you devote some time in your book to um, prof prophetesses um, who appear at the beginning of um, yes. Luke's writing. So. Um, this was this was a very interesting thing for me just to just to think over. Um, but could could you elaborate on on the meaning of this term and um, whether it implies that these women were engaged in teaching ministries of some sort? So is is prophecy a kind of preaching that kind of thing? Or I don't um, I don't think that's what Luke. You, you're thinking of the first two chapters of Luke. I assume yes, yes, yeah. Stories. Yeah. Um, these are they're not formal teachers they're not probably not formal prophets but they are prophets in Luke's terms because they what they say and do is under the influence of the Holy Spirit um, and uh, and it's amazing how Luke does this because he he draws I mean the most beautiful birth narratives are Luke's I mean there's a beautiful contrast or comparison between the birth of Jesus on the one hand and the birth of John the Baptist and within that, that they go in, in tandem together, although John the Baptist begins to prophesy even from the womb, even in utero, he kicks, you know, to acknowledge uh, Jesus. Uh, and Elizabeth interprets that as I remember a student saying to me, but wouldn't it just be an ordinary kick? I said, no, because Elizabeth's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and she recognises it for what it is, that it's actually already a prophetic sign. And uh, and there's a there is a, a really remarkable contrast between her and Zechariah. Now Zechariah is the priest; he's got the greater status, and and yet he actually fails to um, respond to the to the angel Gabriel in the way that Mary does. Um, and then um, Elizabeth, who has greater status than Mary as the wife of a priest, an older woman um, from Judea, not the back blocks of Galilee. And yet she defers to Mary, this young woman, um, because of who her son is, who she's carrying in her womb. So there's this, I think, and, and Mary's um, great canticle, the Magnificat, is, of course, under the influence of the Spirit. Mary is under the influence of the Spirit in her conception, which she, um, she says a very powerful yes to. 
uh, when the angel Gabriel gives so uh, comes to her. So so these two women are really quite remarkable. They're not the only ones. Mm. Um, there's also um, Anna, um, uh, uh, later in Luke's uh, birth story, who also uh, recognizes Christ and who's an incredibly devout um, older woman, um, who also uh, we don't have any direct speech from her, but you get the sense that she too is under the under the shadow of the spirit. Mm. A prophet is basically anyone who's it, well, at least in Luke's in Luke's mind, is a prophet anyone who's under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Is that just what he's what he's thinking? Under the under the direct influence of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> yes. Um, now, when you you look at the Pentecost story, you know where Luke quotes Joel you know, um, that about the sons and the daughters prophesying that this is part of the new age in Christ, um, that many actually will, including women as well as men, uh, will prophesy. Um, it's a bit hard to know whether Luke has, because these are not fixed terms, you know. Um, when, you, when you look at Paul in 1 Corinthians, you know, prophecy looks an awful lot more like preaching, you know, to us. Mm. Um, but I think Luke... Not quite sure about that, actually. I'm not sure that Luke quite sees it in the same way, especially within the life of Jesus. Okay. Continuing on with that um, topic of um, prophecy in uh, at least the, the opening chapters of Luke, one argument I never come across that you have in your book is the idea that Mary's encounter with the angel is um, closely paralleled by Old Testament um, prophetic call narratives. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'd like you to elaborate on these connections, but um, before you do, I, I'm curious to hear what precautions uh, you take to make sure any parallels you draw are not mere coincidence or force, yes. you know. Um, oh, yes, yes. That's always a danger with any exegete, I think. You just try not to. <laughs> you you uh, hope that, I mean, it came to me because I could see so many parallels between the the, the, voc the calling of Mary and to her vocation and the calling of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. And, and then I thought about the pattern of call narratives and, and looked at them, you know, in terms of, um, you, you know, there are certain biblical forms, which is not to say this is the only way God works, but this is the way the story is told and is carried on um, uh, within certain forms. And, and I think that the, the, the story of Mary is, it's, it's a number of things, actually. It's not just a call narrative, but it is at least that, a call narrative because it's got many of the elements of a call narrative. Uh, there's an appearance um, of, a, um, of a figure, um, a, a heavenly figure. Uh, there's dismay, um, you know, Isaiah, woe is me. So there's some kind of epiphany, some revelation of, a, of either God or a heavenly figure. Um, uh, there's a sense of dismay. There's encouragement not to fear. And then there's a commission that's given and then there's the yes of the uh, of the of the prophet to to that, um, yeah. you know, here am I, send me, and uh, and Mary's um, is a very strong yes, of course. Um, May it be to me according to your word. Um, so we get the, the theme of obedience that you get in the prophetic literature, except for Jonah, of course, our old friend <laughs> who runs off in the other other direction. Um, but you, you get the obedient response of the prophet who's given the commission, and her commission is to be the mother of Christ, to be the God-bearer, as later the later church would call her. Mm. It seems up to this point, you know, probably someone who calls themselves a complementarian, 
they, yes. they would probably agree with uh, with most of what you're saying. Yes. Um, yes. Where do you, where do you think they would um, where do you think they would maybe uh, start to start to say I'm not sure about that? You know, um, I'm sorry to say this, but I think many complementarians, at least in the past, have not noticed the women in the text particularly. So. So complementarians, so-called, I don't like that word. I've said that quite clearly in the book because I think you can be a complementarian and believe in women's leadership if you think their roles are complementary. Um, But I'll go with that term. I think complementarians can say yes to all this, but they haven't been saying it in the past. They're not a word from them. Like why is it that women are so invisible um, in not in the text but in commentaries on the text? Why is it that nothing is made of those women in, in Luke 8, 1 to 3, and that we've ended up with Mary Magdalene as a prostitute, which until relatively recently people were happy to go along with? Why is it that in Romans 16 um, we have Junia, clearly a female name, there's no instance of a Junias or Junianus, um, a Junia in which actually I think Chrysostom, was it Chrysostom or... Um, uh, one of the one of the early fathers, anyway, it doesn't matter who, um, actually recognises her as a woman, and yet throughout church history she's been regarded as a man by these people who are complementarian. So that would be the first thing I would say, that, that they've made women invisible, women who are visible in the scriptures. I mean, that's the thing about the scriptures, isn't it? I mean, because we believe that they're not only inspired, but the Holy Spirit continues to inspire our reading, we're always finding new things in them. So I don't want to be too harsh on past generations um, because future generations could be pretty harsh on us, what we miss. Um, Yet the the Lord has still more light and truth to shine forth from his words. There's a hymn that says a line like that, and I think that's true. So, So I think there's probably a new awareness but, but I don't hear it particularly among complementarians, so forgive me if I'm wronging any complementarian. The second thing I would say is that they underestimate the actual roles that women have. Um, so, for example, about going back to Romans 16, they'll downplay um, the role that the women have. They'll downplay the role of Mary Magdalene um, in, in John 20. They'll downplay the role of the Galilean women. For example... Um, how many complementarians and how many people in the tradition recognise that most likely the Galilean women in Luke are present right through chapter 24 and, and into um, Acts chapter 1 and 2, of course, that they're actually present at Pentecost. Now, some of the iconography does present Mary there, but not the other, not the other Galilean women. Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Susanna, you know, that whole crowd Mm. of women who are there at the empty tomb, um, actually there's nothing that says they're not present. And my attitude is unless it says they're not there, they're there. Would would it be fair to say that that your concern with complementarians is 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 more their their downplaying of women's roles rather than their specific position on women's ministry? Would would you say that? No, I wouldn't actually. Sorry. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, uh, I would say there is definitely a downplaying, um, uh, but I think that leads to a, an emphasis on women's ministry. That you know that the requirement for obedience from women in in the church and in the home. So um, so. And, and it seems to me there's also an inconsistency there. 
I think that if a complementarian was really honest and really logical, um, they would say that leadership qualities belong to men, not women, except when it comes to small children, uh, to children, women or other women. Um, women can have a limited leadership. That actually should apply not just in the church and the home, but right across the board. We should not be having a female prime minister. Um, we should not be having women in leadership in any role because I think the logical thing is to say that the God is not given in the order of creation. God has given leadership and authority to men rather than women. Mm. And I think that a, a truly consistent complementarian approach would see that right across the board. Okay. And I don't see that. And I, I look, I, I have friends in a, in a diocese north of uh, where I live, considerably in the far north, um, who are who believe in the obedience of women, of their wives to them in the home, and yet their wives are lawyers and doctors and, you know, eminently educated women. And I, I just don't know, I don't know how they think it works. I mean, Gordon Fee has tackled this head on. And he's just said, in the ancient world, you know, you're talking about a 14-year-old girl, perhaps married to a 30-year-old man. She's got no life experience outside the home. Um, he's got probably limited but more. He might have a little bit of education. She'll have none. It makes sense that he's the head of the home. You know, that in that context, it makes sense. But when you've got two people who are equally well-educated, with equal life experience, um, where the woman might even be older these days um, and where she might have more status, better education or, or the same or whatever, it makes no sense. And, and Gordon Fee, I think he's absolutely right about that. And he's writing as an evangelical. Quite a number of uh, of eminent evangelical scholars who, uh, Craig Keener, take him. Now, he actually is a very, perhaps one of the most leading, uh, the leading evangelical scripture scholars today um, of New Testament. I can't think of anybody better, actually, from the evangelical tradition. Mm. And he's definitely not clear. He's argued very strongly against complementarianism. You mentioned Luke chapter eight there, yes. um, and uh, um, keeping keeping with Luke, what what is the what is the significance of um, of this passage? Um, maybe yep. if you could just explain what the passage is about and how this is yes. significant to your discussion of women's ministry. Yes. Um, um, well, if you have a look at the synop the other two synoptic gospels, uh, Mark and Matthew. They um, mentioned that there were women included among the disciples um, who go from Galilee to Jerusalem. They only mention it at the crucifixion after Jesus' death. And, uh, and they note that, and the reason they note it there is because it's only at that point that, um, that in, a, in a way, they need to mention it because only at that point is it, does it need to be say that, said that Jesus is not alone when he dies. At a distance, there are this group of women who have followed language of discipleship and who have ministered language of ministry to Jesus along the road. But with Luke, Luke mentions them a lot earlier and um, he mentions them um, fairly early on-ish in Jesus' Galilean ministry. And, uh, and what, what would the picture that we have is of Jesus ministering um, with two groups of people with him. Um, a sort of inner group of men, the 12, and an inner group of women. Um, and Luke um, mentions uh, several of these women, Mary, called Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. 
Um, so he mentions three of these women, and then he says many others, and who provided for them. Now, I'm use, using the NRSV, terrible translation. Who ministered to him? Um, it's not clear whether it's ministered to him or to them. So there's some dispute about whether it's they're just ministering to Jesus or whether they're also ministering to the 12 and um, out of their resources. So they're reasonably well-to-do to, to women. They, they bankrolled the whole Jesus movement. Um, so, but but it's, it presents, like we always think of Jesus surrounded by the 12 and the Hollywood pictures portray Jesus walking along with 12 disciples straggling along behind him. And on one modern movie, there's Mary Magdalene stuck in at the end um, in a pretty awful portrait of her. But in actual fact, Luke, a little bit later, sends out, Jesus sends out 70, 70 disciples. It's a really big crowd of disciples, not just the 12, but other men as well. Cleopas, for example, about whom we know very little, but we do know that he was an eyewitness and a disciple. So, so Luke mentions them very early on, and it's unfortunate that we make the link between Mary Magdalene and the sinful woman um, in chapter 7 of Luke, because there's no link made by Luke. These are women who have been healed, who have been recipients of Jesus' ministry and who have followed him wholeheartedly. And, and this is a Luke in touch, they've given up their wealth for him. They've used their wealth to support him, which, of course, is one of the features of the true disciple. Um, and it just seems to me immensely important. Um, I mean, the, the list is interesting because you've got this woman called Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Cusa, um, who's a member of the Herodian court. Now, uh, Richard Borkham has talked a lot about this and uh, argues that she's to be identified with the Apostle Junior in Romans 16, and they, that may or may not be true. But it's interesting all the same that you have this group of Galilean peasants and you've got this what appears to be, at least at face value, seems to be a quite well-to-do woman, woman, a sort of rich bitch, as we would say in Australia, um, who's there among them, who's given up goodness knows what to hang around with this group of, you know, straggly, ragged peasants. You know, it, it's it's extraordinary. It really is an extraordinary tiny little insight into, into the power of Jesus to attract people from all walks of life. Yeah. And in that group of um, in that group of seventy that go out is is that just is that just men or uh, or well, do we, we don't not know? know. The, yeah, the text doesn't say. But you see, I take the I take the attitude that let's not uh, let's say they are unless we're told otherwise. Okay, now now Joan is it Joan Taylor of King's College London? Um, have I got her name right? She argues that uh, that um, in fact the two by two has overtones of um i think she says that it's it reminds her of the story of the ark in genesis and you know the two by two is always a male and a female i don't know if that's really great yeah. argument um, yeah. joan taylor yes but but certainly i mean given that you've got a group of men and a group of women why wouldn't there be women among them why wouldn't a husband and wife go together for example in, yeah. on the mission mm. You know, why wouldn't um, a brother and sister go together on the mission? Um, maybe not two women by themselves, but and but there, there's no reason to doubt that. You know, I think the, the, the boot is on the other foot. I think um, the complementarian or whoever has to argue that it's only male. 
It's interesting. I'm just thinking, you know, the, the, the word you're using for um, ministry, you know, when we, when we, when we use that word, um, I think, I think most of us think uh, preaching. That's, that's like the first thing, first thing yeah. we go to, but it, I suppose you're thinking of this in a more broad sense, would you say? Yeah, or, a broader yeah. sense. Well, it's it's diakonia, diakoneo is, is the word group. Um, and and it does mean, well, there's a, there's a bit of dispute about what exactly it comes from and what it means, but but it certainly has the idea of service. And uh, and there's all sorts of service. I mean, you know, when when Mark, in Mark's gospel, when Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve, he's actually talking about his death on the cross. So he's not talking about his preaching there. And, and preaching is only a part of his ministry. There's preaching, teaching, healing, exercising, nature miracles is, is a, a rich. So I think we need to get a much broader understanding of ministry. And, I mean, even without pushing for the ordination of women, the work that women do also in the kitchens of church halls is and has to be seen as ministry. You know, the women who clean and who put flowers up, or the men who do those things, they're also engaging in ministry. And who's to say that the pastor's work at preaching is greater? Hmm. You know, who, that's our hierarchy. It's not necessarily God's. That, that's an interesting yeah, way of putting it. Um, what story do you think in Luke's gospel informs us the most about how Jesus viewed women? Oh, that's very hard to know because there's so many beautiful so stories. Many. I mean, one of my favourites is the story of the sinful woman um, in Luke 7, uh, in verses 36 to 50. Um, it's not the only story that shows how Jesus treated women, but it is one because, you know, here she is, an outsider, disreputable. I mean, she's not explicitly called a prostitute. We may assume that and we might be right but she's a sinner. It doesn't matter to Luke. If you ask Luke in the heavenly banquet, was she a prostitute? He'll say, I don't know. That wasn't the point. The point is she's part of a group called sinners. So she's outside the law um, for moral and all sorts of other reasons. Well, she might be a thief, you know, for all we know. But anyway, um, so she comes into this male banquet. Now, at this banquet, this dinner, dinner party, Jesus has his host is Simon the Pharisee, who's shown minimal hospitality. You know, in Australia, when you go to someone's house, or at least when we used to before lockdown, um, you know, they'd take your coat and your bag and they'd say, come and have a seat. Would you like something to drink? And, and you know, and then they'd offer you a bowl of olives or something, you know. Well, it's as if si Jesus walks into Simon's house and G Simon doesn't do any of that. You know, he doesn't offer to wash his feet or any, he doesn't, doesn't give him a hug, doesn't give him a kiss, you know, any of the normal, he's actually quite cold. And, uh, and the hospitality is very meagre and Luke's big on hospitality. So what happens is this woman comes in and, you know, she does washing Jesus' feet. I think, um, and then there's this whole conversation. The thing is that by the end of the story, Jesus says to her, um, your sins have been forgiven. I think she comes not asking for repentance. I think she's already received it. I think her tears are gratitude, a profound gratitude for what Jesus has already done. Now, now that's, I know, disputed, but that's how I read the text. And that what she does then is to take over the role of host that Simon fails to do. So the sort of hospitality he fails to give, this woman gives. She actually shows hospitality to Christ, to God. 
she repays God's hospitality with her own, Jesus' hospitality with her own. And therefore she is she shows up. Um, so in the honor shame system of the ancient world, um, Simon loses honor in that conversation. She, who is who has no honor, is given honor. And it's that giving of honor to sinners um, that Jesus does um, through, and it's not just to women, of course. I mean, Luke 15 gives us three examples, one of them a woman, two males, um, who also there's the same overturning and hospitality going on there. But I think the very fact that Jesus honours women in this way and gives honour to them um, and, and, and recognises their, their need of salvation and their positive response to salvation, I think is incredibly powerful. Mm. Jesus is amazing. So think, <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. I th- and I really think that story, we haven't actually plumbed the depths of it yet. Mm. I'm going to, we're just going to be moving on to Acts now, um, of yes. course, which is the which is the second um, part of uh, uh, Luke's. Well, that's, that's what we'll ask first. Um, how certain are you that Luke is also the author of Acts? So obviously... Just about everything is contested in New Testament scholarship, isn't it? So I know. Well, you've got to allow for all these PhDs, don't you? Yeah. Um, I think that Luke says, makes it quite clear from the beginning of Acts, the only reason we doubt it is because of the shape of the canon, because um, the, the canon has chosen to put the synoptics together and to separate. I mean, actually what they should have done is put John, I would have put John first myself, but that's me. Uh, it should needed to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, and then John. But Luke, I mean, the only que- reason I think we really question it is because they're separated in the canon. But actually, Luke makes it quite clear that it, he's written a first work and this is his second. The language is the same. Um, the theological concepts are the same. The style of writing is the same. Um, everything about it is, uh, it's, it's, there are very, very few scholars who actually um, question it. There are a few, there's always a few, but they are very much in a minority. And that's right across the board, Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Orthodox, et cetera. And there's, I mean, there's still some scholars who think that Mark was written before, no, sorry, Matthew was written before Mark. So, you know, it's... Yes, there are, there are. (laughs) Although I I believe one of the big exponents of that died in the last couple of years. So that theory is probably going to take a bit of a dive. Okay. (laughs) Even further. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So... um, at the start of your chapter on Acts, and we talked a little bit about this, um, you make the following observation. Women are significantly less prominent in Acts than they are in the Gospels in terms of number and visibility. Gender pairing is also less frequent, though it is not entirely absent. Um, you also go on to say a key question is whether Luke ultimately gives any place to women's leadership in the community, or whether he reflects a later context in which patriarchal control is being reestablished and projected back onto the past in the story of the earliest church. So this is the kind of the um, the, the sinister motive that some yes. scholars give to this. But um, what do you think of this? Um, does does Luke give any place to women's for women's uh, ministry or is he sort of, uh, does he have more insidious motives here? Um, I don't think uh, uh, Luke has insidious motives. <laughs> um, no, I don't. Um, but I do think that, it's the, the title is unfortunate, Acts of the Apostles. This is not the Acts of the Apostles. Um, it is uh, the Acts mainly of Peter and Paul, whom I think only is at once or twice Luke refers to as an apostle. 
So he doesn't see Paul as primarily, he, he restricts, I think he's writing in a later period, he restricts the term apostle to the 12, whereas Paul has a broader understanding of what an apostle is. And, and I suspect over time it's just become a little bit more formalised. Um, so so it, it's, it's unfortunate to call it the Acts of the Apostles um, for that reason. It is actually only one slice of the life of the early church. So I, I think we need to be very careful not to, especially as we go through Acts, because, you know, so much of it is, is concerned with Paul and his missionary journey. I mean, it really is focused on the mission of the Holy Spirit. And uh, if, if I was to rename, I was, we can always rename everything, but I would want to call it something like that. It's, it's after Pentecost and you get the beginning of the church's life, then I think it, it really does focus, first of all, on Peter and then on Paul. And uh, so it's not really, we don't hear anything about Thomas, even though we know, well, we think he might have gone to India or any of the other apostles. We, don't, we actually know very little about what happened to them. So, so I think to say that this is... Um, it's not the only picture of the early church. We, we've got one that's in, even earlier than Acts, and that is Paul. Mm. Paul gives us a picture of the early church in the 50s. And, uh, and, and that Luke, Acts, Acts, sorry, Acts has to be said alongside Paul as well. Mm. Um, and uh, and I, I think that Paul does see, see a, um, Acts does see a role for women, um, but not the sort of role that Peter or Paul have. Um, because I think he's focusing on them. And I don't honestly think that women, I don't think women's leadership, I do argue for it in the New Testament, I don't think it was as extensive as men's. Um, I, I think it was really radical that it happened at all and that, you know, because of house churches and so on, you get women like um, Lydia, for example, um, or Priscilla, any of those women. Um, I think it's amazing that they have any leadership at all, but there's not as many leaders, women leaders as men. I, I don't think there's any point in trying to argue for that. This this, this um, figure of Priscilla. Um, yes. Could you maybe elaborate on why there is such a fascination um, with this woman in this in, in these um, discussions and um, what implications she might have for understanding the role of women in the early church? Mm. Well, um, Luke, um, both Luke and Paul mention her. Um, Paul um, usually calls her Prisca, but Luke uh, in Acts 18 um, tells a story about her and um, her uh, husband um, Aquila. Um, usually in the New Testament, in most cases, her name comes first. Now, that's unusual. In a patriarchal world, um, the man's name comes first, but in most cases, she is named first. Um, it could be um, that she's of a higher caste, a higher class than Aquila. That could be. But it also could be because she's the more eminent of the two. Um, and certainly we see her in a role of teaching. Um, so they take um, Apollos aside and teach him. So it's in, in uh, Acts 18. Um, he's so, Apollos is, you know, full of enthusiasm, obviously uh, wonderful rhetoric and all the gifts that someone from... Uh, from Alexandria can have, and um, he's got no fear of speaking in the synagogue, but Priscilla and Aquila, and this is how he's, Luke says it, when, um, when they heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately, and that actually really deepens and strengthens his missionary work, which he goes on to do, and his evangelism. Um, now, mm. that is not in itself enough, but it's 
Priscilla is a is certainly theologically learned. Um, and it also, I think it's backed up by Paul um, and by his description in Romans 16. Um, let me just get that text. Yep. Um, uh, Romans 16, when he lists particularly the women, verse 3, greet Prisca, he always calls her Prisca, greet Prisca and Aquila, again, you know, her name first, who work with me in Christ Jesus. Now, he's talking about mission work, evangelism and who risk their necks for my life. So they're very courageous, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles among whom they have evangelised. And uh, so Prisca is an evangelist. She's um, a missionary. So she, in that sense, she's a leader in the church um, and someone whom Paul values immensely. All this rubbish about Paul being a misogynist is just absolute, oh, it's just rubbish. Yeah, yeah, wow. I mean, Paul is no misogynist. Mm. Um, he's happy to work alongside women and to honour them in, in the most beautiful ways as he does in Romans 16. Mm. The other um, uh, woman that features prominently in Acts is um, Lydia. Um, yes. And you say that she was um, probably the leader of a house church. Now, that's yes. um, that's uh, certainly a, a controversial uh claim oh is it <laughs> well well sir, well for, for some people anyway um yeah why would you um why would you come to that uh conclusion um yourself? look it's I, I don't i can't prove it um i'm not the only one who said it incidentally um i can't prove it i think it's just likely that uh she's uh, a god-fearer or at least connected to the synagogue and um, this interesting thing about synagogue of women is itself interesting um she takes her paul into her home i mean i think there's it's it's quite likely that she is the leader of a house church um i can't prove it but i think that you know that it's I, it's funny you know you say that's controversial i thought it was obvious so <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah isn't it funny how you read the text and you make assumptions and and then you find not everybody else reads it the same way yeah um, well i suppose so, look, i might be wrong about that but yeah. um she's an immensely important figure certainly she's engaged in ministry um i think it's likely that there's a house that meets a church that meets in her house and we do know that um the early church met in houses and sometimes they were headed by women, um, mainly men. If you read Luke 10, you get the impression that Martha is the head of house. There's no reference to Lazarus there. I don't know what happens happened to poor old Lazarus. Perhaps he's married and gone off somewhere. But the impression is that so there were women who were heads of house. Paul talks about Chloe's people. Um, and it could well be that she's uh, that she, if she's a Christian, she's the leader of a house church. Phoebe also um, who ministers in Kencrie, she may be the leader of a house church. That's where Christians met, in houses. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and probably women of, who had a little more wealth than others um, were able to house the churches and, and were the natural leaders in those churches. Yeah, I suppose um, it makes sense what you're saying, you know, if you're reading, reading this with more of a egalitarian or mutualist, some people call, call it a mutualist um, lens that you would... Yes. Um, that you would, you know, um, look at this and say, "Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe she's a leader of a house church." Whereas, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're a complementarian and you have yes. this kind of um, systematic approach of what women can or cannot do, it yes. will, it, it will just be kind of automatically, you know, 
you're not going to be associating her with, you know, the yes, that's right. Being and look, near, I'm not. Yeah. I would not base women's leadership on Lydia. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I, th- I would base it much more on Mary Magdalene or Mary, the mother of Jesus, um, or uh, Paul's um, list of women in Romans 16 on the women at the tomb in the the Gospels. I mean, I, I wouldn't base it on Lydia. Actually, mm. I, I think it's. I think she's a wonderful woman and um, and one of the great mothers of faith that that women and men have, um, but uh, but there's not enough I think evidence to actually base women's leadership on her on the figure of her. Better with Priscilla, I think. Yeah, yeah. That no, that was that was that's definitely an interesting case and one I've never actually been been exposed to the one on Priscilla. So incidentally, can I just say something else about Priscilla? There's a, a woman called Ruth Hoppin who argues that uh, Priscilla wrote Hebrews. Um, yeah. And uh, and now uh, my favourite scholar of Hebrews is Amy Peeler, and Amy actually doesn't go along with that. I think she's more like she's more tends towards Apollos being um, the, the writer, but she did say to me once, um, if Apollos wrote Hebrews, then he was taught by Priscilla. So Yeah, yeah. So, but it is interesting it's that interesting, that's the yeah. only serious, and what's more, it came from Adolf von Harnack, who suggested at the beginning of the 20th century that uh, Priscilla had written Hebrews. I mean, Harnack is a terrible figure. You know, he drew up the Kaiser's War policy and we just don't want to know him. He was the ultimate in Protestant liberalism. Um, but uh, but it's interesting that he actually came up with this theory and Ruth Hoppen has picked it up and has got a whole book arguing for uh for Priscilla as the uh, the author of Hebrews, so that's yeah. just another, again, yeah. not something that can be proved. I think, but interesting. Yeah. I think you know, I, I, I'm not I'm not an expert on, on on Greek or anything, but I remember when I uh, I, I looked into that briefly, and uh, I think there was someone was making an argument that there's some like grammatical there is uh, one touch place, yes. where it says yes. that it, it that it seems to imply it was male. Possibly. Yeah, there's, yes, there's there's one place where, uh, but Ruth Hoppen argues that, I think, I'm just trying to think how she argues against that. Uh, I think she argues that um, that that's sort of um, trying to hide her identity. Okay. So that, that's why I, I think that's why she argues, I think she, because one of those peculiar things about Hebrews is why it's, it doesn't have a, an epistolary beginning. You know, there's not nothing. So, if you if you think that it was a woman, you could say, well, uh, there's no beginning to that letter. There's an epistolary ending, but there's no beginning because um, there's an attempt to conceal the female identity. And look, as far as I'm concerned, we'll have the best Greek in the New Testament any day. I'd like to think it was true, but that's just a desire. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. may well have been Apollos, and that's fine too. Yeah, exactly. Whoever wrote it was absolutely marvellous anyway. Yes, yeah, definitely. Definitely knew their Old Testament. Um, oh, goodness, yes. Probably um, a complementarian brother and sister, you know, if they're if they're reading reading these chapters on Luke and Acts, they might they might say that, you know, it's 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 an interesting case. Maybe we have, you know, downplayed, maybe some of us have downplayed, yes. you know, but they, they would say that the fact that we never see women preaching per se, in Acts, says something about yes. women not being able to lead in worship. So, Yeah, sure. Um, well, I would say to that, first of all, we don't see a whole lot of people preaching. There are not many um, homilies, so, sermons recorded in Acts. 
and thereby only a couple of people, um, mainly Peter. Um, and second of all, uh, our evidence for women's leadership in the church is not based on any one writer, but on the whole of the Old Testament. We interpret the canon by the canon. It's a good Reformation principle. Mm. And, uh, and so we read Paul and we read John and we read the synoptics. Uh, we read all of them together. We read Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Um, and, uh, and I think that if you assume that preaching in Paul is very close to prophecy, um, that that's really what he's talking about, that second of the, the greatest gifts that he, he talks about, prophecy, then he does permit women to prophesy in 1 Corinthians 11. Of course, there's all that stuff about their hair or their head or whatever that's about. I don't know what Paul is talking about, frankly, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's actually so trivial it doesn't matter. The main point is that he confirms um, women's capacity to, uh, to uh, prophesy in the assembly. Just on that note of prophecy, um, there are um, there are some uh, scholars who would be more of a, a complementarian uh, mindset, such as Wayne Grudem, those kind of people, and they would say yes. that that prophecy was different in the New Testament to the Old. And I think and I think the reason they would say that is because um, they they would say then we'd have the problem where every time a prophet is speaking that what they were saying it would have to be infallible, that kind of thing. Right. Um, I don't know if you have ever come across that that argument. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Look, I'm not even sure that it means the same thing in Luke as in Paul. You know, I you know, I'm not very comfortable with words like infallible. To yeah. To be honest, um, I I can't see that there's necessarily a huge gulf. I mean, I think what the prophets are doing in the Old Testament it depends who you're talking about. This is the problem. Categorize all. I mean, Moses is a prophet. You know. Yeah. Um, and and then there are the sort of social justice idolatry prophets, and then there's the Jonah prophet who runs off. And you know, there there is all different understandings of what prophecy is. Sometimes it's telling the future, sometimes it's talking about the present, um, and, and it's proclaiming the word of God in condemning idolatry and so on. Um, I think the early church took their prophets very seriously, whether they thought they were the inspired word of God. I think the impression we get from Paul. And also in 1 Corinthians, and also now I come to think of it from 1 John, the impression we get is that the early church saw the need to test the prophets, that they couldn't just take what a prophet said at face value. It actually had to be tested by the community. And I guess I guess that the response to the Old Testament prophets is that in a way they've been tested. You know, what they said did actually come to pass. And what they proclaimed was what we recognise to be the word of God and what Jesus recognised, more importantly, to be the word of God. So I think that it's not a matter of any old prophet getting up and saying whatever they like. It's it's a question of testing um, mm. what is said. Now, Luke doesn't go into any of that, but I think Paul does. And I think one, one John, when it speaks of testing the spirits, is something very similar. You don't just take what somebody says on face value. So, so just in conclusion... To, to make the case for women in um, teaching roles, you would um, you would start with uh, you would start with Paul uh, more than more than Luke, or would would you include Luke as, as well in your? No, I, where would I start? Well, I always start everything with the Gospel of John. So let me just put my bias out there, um, and then I go to the Synoptic Gospels, then I go to Paul, but. I mean, they're not in necessarily a hierarchy. It's just that I've read a lot of John and over many years. Um, 
So I wouldn't go to one just one place, but I would go to what one of my theological teachers said, the New Testament has is a three-legged stool. One is the synoptics, and that includes Luke. One is the Gospel of John, and the third is Paul. And, and, that, and of course, there are other writers as well and other writings, um, you know, Hebrews, Revelation and so on, but they are the fundamentals, and it's to those three that I would go. Hmm. So first, doesn't really matter which one you go to first. I think they've got equal weight, equal authority. Well, okay, it's 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 been great anyway uh, talking to you on on the show, uh, Dr. Good Dr. Lee. To you, Patrick. Yeah. Oh, um, Dorothy, please. Dorothy. Okay. Yeah. Th- thanks, a million, Dorothy. <laughs>